Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, that is on page 1002. Been on page 1001 for several weeks. <laughs> and actually, if you do have that pew Bible, I'm actually going to start reading uh, in verse 9. I'm going to read verses 9 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I have a question for parents and kids out there and any adult who as a child maybe had this interaction with your parents. What is implied behind the question that what's the answer that the person is looking for, the parents, when they say, how many times do I have to tell you? Well, we know that the answer is, until you remember, right? Or until you do what I'm telling you to do. I'm not asking that question of us this morning as a frustrated parent, uh, but I do want to ask it of myself and of us as a congregation as we approach the book of Hebrews. I maybe ask it a bit playfully, uh, but also with some gravity. How many times do we need to be reminded of the things that we are being taught here in Hebrews? I think the question is answered for us by the author. Remember, this is one long sermon here. This was a letter sent to a church that was to be read uh, in the service. It's probably, I think we've, some of us read it in our community groups. It takes about 45 minutes to read. Uh, so it's actually not that long. We've had several 45-minute sermons here today, and buckle your seatbelts because this will probably be close to that. 
Uh, but this is one big argument that Jesus is better. It's the main theme of the book of Hebrews. And if you don't get that by the end of this long series of several months in Hebrews, then you're definitely not listening. So pay attention. Jesus is better. And throughout Hebrews, we're going to see six different things that Jesus is better than. And then there are going to be six corresponding warnings in relation to each one of those things. Our first warning came a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter two. And the warning is that, is that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. So again, that warning is pay attention. Pay attention to what you have heard and don't drift away from it. Now, warning, that first warning that we saw comes right in the middle of this long section from chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 18, which is this huge reminder that Jesus is superior to the angels. As we saw last week, our author argued from Psalm 8 that all things are subject to Jesus. And even though we don't currently see everything as and our, our present reality, we don't currently see everything subject to to Jesus, we do see Jesus that we saw in verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, this verse 9 here is really an important launching point for us this morning as we look at verses 10 through 18. Verses 10 through 18 here is this steady stream of interconnected thoughts and arguments about the realities that we do see Jesus that we saw in verse 9. We're going to see here there are six fours, there are two therefores, and there are two so that's. Now we have to be able to read this and we have to see where the author is going with these arguments. And this can be a bit of a challenge for us in our soundbite culture, right? We just want these little snippets. We want these short explanations of things. And he's saying, no, we have to slow down here and we have to unpack this. We have to look at this carefully and see how all of these things flow together. So I want to encourage us to do that this morning, especially in a passage like this, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we would hear what is being communicated to us. There is a lot in this passage. I'm not going to be able to unpack everything that's here. I was telling James this week, like, this would be a fantastic, at least two-hour Bible study to sit down and to look up all these different cross-references to different places and, and what these themes are talking about. I'm going to get into some of it, but we obviously can't do all of that uh, this morning. There are a lot of other passages in Hebrews and in the rest of the New Testament uh, many great theological topics. So I'm just going to try to touch on some of these and hopefully give you uh, just a, a little taste of, of what's going on. And, and hopefully you can go and do some more reading and studying on your own. So basically the approach here, I'm going to highlight three of the main parts of this passage through the alliteration that you see uh, in the sermon title. And again, if you have the insert uh, from the worship guide, there is an outline there. The title is The People's Perfect Propitiating Priest. Each of the main points then of the outline are going to include the encouragement to see from verse 9. So let's dive in here. First, we must see him who tasted death for the people of God. Last Sunday, I mentioned that we'd be talking more about that last clause in verse 9 that says, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We talked about how Jesus tasting death is this Hebrew expression that means that Jesus fully experienced death. To taste something meant to fully experience it. So Jesus really, truly died. He really, truly suffered and had this horrible experience of death on our behalf. So what does it mean then when we say that he tasted death for everyone? A couple important things here. First, we don't believe in universalism. In other words, we don't believe that everyone is going to be saved in the end. If that was the case, why would our author go to such great lengths to argue for the supremacy of Jesus over and over against all of these other things? And why would we have these warnings about turning away from Jesus if all roads ultimately led to God? So we are not universalists. That is very fundamental here. Second, we don't believe in a universal atonement. We don't believe that Jesus died in the place of every single person. And it's just up to each person to decide if they want to appropriate Jesus' death for themselves. And that is not what the author of Hebrews is arguing here. This is why the context is so important. We, when we see a word like this, this word everyone, we have to ask, what does this mean here? And we need to keep reading in verses 10 through 18 to see what he means by everyone. Everyone revert, refers to a very specific group of people. Every single verse, look with me here, we're going to go through this. Every single verse in verses 10 through 18 refers to a certain group of people. Verse 10, many sons, in bringing many sons to glory. He's starting to explain who the everyone here, here is. Many sons. Verse 11, those who are sanctified. Verse, and then at the end of verse 11, he, that he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, again, my brothers. Verse 13, I and the children God has giving, given me. Verse 14, again, the children. Verse 15, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, his brothers. And then end of verse 17, the sins of the people. Verse 18, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The everyone from verse 9 is all of these people, and it's all the same people. It's the people of God. This everyone is not speaking of everyone universally. It is speaking about specific people, the people of God, and it's mentioned in every single verse here. This is very important. So I want to just look at a couple of these. In verse 17, it mentions at the end to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is very important here when we see this phrase, the people. Now, this word for people here is just, it's a generic word for people in the Greek. It's actually used 150 times in the New Testament, and usually it just means people generically. But 12 times it is used specifically to refer to the people of God, and five of those times are used in Hebrews. One of the other times outside of Hebrews, it's a word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.10. It's a passage we're very familiar with. We've preached it a couple times here. It's where we get our, the name for our church, Living Stone. 
Peter is writing to Christians and he reminds them, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So you were not a people. You were not included in the everyone that Jesus died for that Hebrews is talking about here, but now you are God's people. Now you are, because of Jesus, you are part of that everyone. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Clearly, this means that a change has occurred to make us God's people. Once we weren't his people, and now we are. God has done something to make that change happen. What is it that God has done? That is a major emphasis of these verses here about the humanity of Jesus. And not just the fact that he became human, but how he relates to us in our humanity. Now, we're getting close to Christmas time. We're going to be having lots of songs and lots of readings around here, uh, reminding us of Jesus' incarnation, of the Son of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We're going to be celebrating that fact. We always celebrate that fact, but we especially celebrate that fact at Christmas time. Even before he was born, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save who from their sins? His people, right? Jesus will save his people from their sins. Right from the very very beginning, universalism is out the window, right? It's not a thing. Jesus is coming to save his people from their sins. That is why he came. And we're going to get specifically to this in the third section. But first, let's look at verses 11 to 13. What do we see here in verses 11 to 13? He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, right, Christians who follow him and trust in him, all have one source. Now, the Greek here is a little ambiguous. All it says is that they're all from one. Uh, So some English translations add in the word father here uh, to say that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father or all are from one father. That's an appropriate word to add there, even though it's not in the original language. That is what it is speaking of. We both have one source, God the Father. And that then brings some clarity to the rest of verse 11 and the Old Testament quotes in 12 and 13. Notice who is speaking here. End of verse 11 says, this is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers, right? Saying, okay? Now in chapter one, all of those quotes from the Old Testament are attributed to who? Who was speaking? God the Father was speaking, right? Now we see this is attributed to Jesus. This is saying Jesus is saying these things. So we're told here that these words are actually the words of Jesus from Psalm 22 and then from Isaiah chapter 8. Now we understand this to mean that the psalm David wrote was actually a messianic psalm that was about Jesus. Jesus quoted from Psalm 22 on the cross in the beginning of Psalm 22, 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this quotation here from Psalm 22, 22, here in verse 12, is significant because 
This is actually the turning point in the psalm as it changes the focus from suffering, right? It starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, my enemies? There's all this stuff about enemies surrounding him. And then in verse 22, it shifts from focusing on suffering to focusing on glory. So do you see the connection here with where the author of Hebrews is taking this? Again, look back at verse 9. The one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, who tasted death for the children of God because the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. There's this transition from suffering to glory. Jesus experienced that. The psalm is about that. So when the author of Hebrews quotes this verse, he's starting at the turning point from when things go from suffering to glory. And that's how Jesus identifies with us, and he calls us his brothers. Verse 13 focuses on the fact that he trusted in the Father, and we are reminded that we are the children of God who have been given to Christ. Now, when we hear this term that Jesus is our elder brother, sometimes it might sound a little confusing. In his Ask Pastor John podcast, John Piper was asked, what it means that Jesus is our brother. And here was his answer as it specifically relates to Hebrews 2.11. He says, what adds weight and wonder and affection to our worship of Christ is that it is the combination of the exalted uniqueness of Jesus as the son of God on the one hand and his utter condescension to share in our nature as humans and our suffering as fallen mortals, all so that he could be included and we could be included in the divine family with Christ as the ever-exalted and superior, unique, divine, older brother. Brothers and sisters, does this, does that, this add that weight and wonder and affection to our worship of Christ? Do we see him? not just as the exalted and crowned king of the universe, but as our elder brother who loves us and who laid down his life for his people. That's what we are meant to see here in this passage. What else are we intended to see in this passage? Our second point is that we must see the perfect founder of our salvation. We're told in verse 10 that it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing, bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, a couple of things that I want us to note here. The first thing, we need to ask, what is meant by the founder of our salvation? The term is actually used one other time in Hebrews in a passage that you're probably familiar with. Hebrews 12.2, where we are reminded to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I notice the parallel there with 2.10 here. Here we're told that Jesus is or sorry, in, in 12.2, we're told that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter who, who endured the cross. In chapter 2, we're told that he is the founder who is made perfect through suffering. 
So you have these ideas of founding and perfection and suffering all tied together. So what appeared to be defeat at the cross was really victory as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this word here that is translated founder is only used two other times outside of Hebrews, and that's both in the book of Acts. This is very significant, I think, especially for this audience of Jewish background believers. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is speaking to the crowd of Jews at Solomon's portico. He reminds them that the God of their fathers glorified Jesus, but that they denied him by asking for a murderer to be released to them instead. Then Peter says, you killed the author, same word as founder, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Jesus, the author of life, is the founder of our salvation. In Acts chapter 5, after the apostles had been arrested and told not to teach in Jesus' name any longer, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, founder, same word, leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice all these connections here with Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation, his death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. These things are all tied together as we think of him as our our founder or our author or our leader. Some other translations translate the word founder as pioneer. So there's a few different senses that this word could take. As author or founder, it could clearly refer to Jesus' deity in connection with the Father in verse 10, for whom and by whom all things exist. Namely here, our salvation. Our salvation exists because of Jesus. Some translations translate this word as champion. I think that relates very well to verses 14 and 15 below, showing how he destroys the devil and he delivers us. We're going to see more of that in a minute. And others translated as pioneer, the one who goes before us, the one who blazes the trail ahead of us, whom we follow after. I think we can pretty safely say that it is D, all of the above. All of these words that we can use for Jesus all apply to him. And certainly I think that part of the implied meaning in the context of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior to the founders and the champions and the pioneers in Israel's history. We're going to see next week that Jesus is better than Moses, that towering Old Testament figure. The superiority of Jesus in whichever one of these terms we use is just shining so brightly. We might think about our own nation, the history of of our own country. There are many people who would fit in some way into some of these categories. Founder, champion, pioneer. People who have done amazing things. People that we should admire, whose examples we should seek to follow in certain ways. But what are any of those people compared to Jesus? They're nothing. They're mere mortals. Even those Old Testament figures, they're, they're fallen sinners just like us. 
They're those whose imperfections often shine as brightly as their triumphs do. But there is one, one who is perfect in every way, one who is without sin, one who suffered for us, who we're told in verse 10 was made perfect through suffering. This doesn't mean that he wasn't perfect before he suffered. As fully God, the son of God, he was perfect in all ways. And as fully man, there was a perfection that he experienced through his suffering as our great high priest. So this is something that we need to be paying attention to throughout Hebrews. This theme of perfection is highlighted over and over again. We're going to see this many times, especially in chapters 5 through 10, as we look at Jesus' priesthood. Hebrews 5, 9 and 10 says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus' life of perfect obedience to his father and his suffering on our behalf are what brought about the completion or the finishing of our salvation. Now, I know there's some other DIYers out there. Uh, you guys, whether it's woodworking or cooking or gardening, uh, you know what this like. You get your tools ready, right? You get all your materials and you spend hours doing something. How many of you have ever, raise your hand, how many of you have ever made something or done something and you have been 100% absolutely satisfied with the result? Okay, James, wow. Uh, I'm curious to hear what it was. But uh, that's not my experience. Um, and maybe I'm just too picky, I don't know. But I have done hundreds, maybe thousands of projects uh, I've got a lot of experience working with different kinds of tools. I go into something feeling confident, like, oh, I'm going to nail this. Still, I am never satisfied in the end. Bill, you could probably speak to this, making the communion trays and making the, the offering box. I know you can't immediate both times and you're like, oh, like there's just this one, like the stain doesn't look perfect, right? If you've ever done any project like that, you know, in the end, it's not exactly how you imagined it, right? Like something is always wrong. The drill bit, bit slips or you nick something or whatever it is, you throw too much spice in the chili and everybody's hacking or whatever. Like it's never perfect unless you're James. He, obviously he did something perfect at some point. <laughs> I'll stop harassing you, James. But again, there is always some flaw in anything we do, right? Because we are flawed. Something is going to break. Something's not going to look right. Something's not going to taste right. But again, it's not so with Jesus. He finished the job that the Father gave him to do, and he did it to perfection. There's not a single flaw. There's not, a, there's not even one tiny little thing that he didn't quite get right. He did it all perfectly. And again, pay attention to this idea as we go through Hebrews, because this contrast between Jesus' perfect sacrifice and the sacrifices of the earthly priests that are never able to perfect us, this contrast is going to be coming out over and over again in Hebrews. Well, speaking of the contrast between the priests, that 
And Jesus, that leads us to our last point. We must see our propitiating priest's victorious deliverance. It's kind of a mouthful, but we must see our propitiating priest's victorious deliverance. I believe that the emphasis of this entire passage is found in verses 14 through 17. And there are two reasons for that. The first is thematic, and the second is linguistic. Let me explain. The theme here in these verses, I believe, is Jesus' incarnation. In verse 14, it says that he likewise partook of flesh and blood. Jesus became human, took on flesh and blood. Verse 17 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The second thing is the linguistic clue in the words that or so that. Um, in verse 14, you see it in the second half of the verse there, that, or should more accurately, I think it should say so that, so that it would match verse 17, because it's the same word, it's a purpose conjunction, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So let's look at these two things. First, we see Jesus' purpose for taking on flesh by what he has done for us. In verse 14, through his death, he destroyed the devil. We have to pause here for a second and work through this. Question is, is the devil actually destroyed in the way we think of complete destruction and annihilation. We would have to say, no, not yet, right? We looked at that in our song that we sang, Triumphant Jesus. It says that he routed sin and death and woe and Satan, my internal foe, the end of verse one. But then what does it say in verse two? Yet does the fiend still prowl and lurk his schemes upon my heart and work. But God before me, who can stand when Christ in battle guides my hand? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, meaning Satan is still at work. 1 Peter 5, Peter tells us, similar to the song, he tells us to be sober-minded and watchful because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We talked about this last week in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed... Same word that's used here of the destruction of the devil. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Is death yet fully destroyed? No, people are still dying. No, Satan is not fully, utterly destroyed because we're told that he's still prowling around like a roaring lion, right? There's something here that we need to to understand what's going, something helpful to understand what's going on. And this is something in language study called semantic range. Okay. This like sounds nerdy. It's not that complicated and it's really important. We saw it already as we looked earlier at, earlier at that word founder, founder, author, pioneer, champion, that one word can have this broad range of meanings, right? They're all very similar, but each one of those kind of carries with it a little bit of a different emphasis and those different emphases are very important as we kind of unpack things here. 
So a word can have several different meanings based on the context. When you look up a word in the dictionary, that's why there's going to be multiple entries in the dictionary. I was kind of doing some research on this, and apparently the word run in English is one of the words that has the most different meanings. Just in my dictionary uh, on my computer, there are 13 verb and 14 noun uses for the word run. So I could say something like, the Atlanta Braves went on quite a run to win the World Series this year. And all of those runs that they scored were due in part to how well their players could run. And you know exactly what I mean when I say that because you know the English language and you know the context of how I'm using those three, three things, but they're all very different, right? Especially the first one that they went on a run, like it's totally symbolic. They didn't, they didn't go anywhere. They went, on a, they went on this run, right? So when we're studying the Bible, we need to be aware of this. A good Bible dictionary can actually be a really helpful tool when you come across something like this. When you're reading and you see the word destroy here, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute. Paul says, and Peter says, that the devil's still active in the world. So what's going on here? Is the author of Hebrews wrong? Like, did he think that Jesus completely destroyed the devil and he really didn't? Well, of course not. But we have to realize that it doesn't mean to completely annihilate. The word here quite literally means to cause something to be idle. It could mean, we could say, invalidate or incapacitate. The New American Standard Translation says to render powerless. I think that's a pretty accurate translation. And this in no way diminishes what Christ has done through his death it actually highlights the certainty of the eventual outcome. If we keep reading until the end of our Bibles in Revelation 20, we see the devil and the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire, where it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Huh, interesting. So even the devil and the false prophet and the beast, their end is not actually total annihilation, right? Their end is not destruction that they're going to be completely wiped out and no longer exist. They're going to be in the lake of fire being tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, are they destroyed when they're thrown into the lake of fire? Absolutely. But we have to understand that word destroyed, what it means there. They're destroyed. They're, they're done for, right? But they still exist. So we can't read back into Hebrews 2 and say, oh, well, the author of Hebrews actually thought the devil was completely annihilated. That's never the case in scripture. So again, we have to be able to look at different passages. We have to look at different words and to be able to understand these things correctly. Also, we see death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, which we read about in Revelation 21, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Is death going to be destroyed, meaning completely wiped out and annihilated? Yes, right? Death will be completely and utterly destroyed. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. Okay. This, what this is speaking here is the future reality that we get a massive foretaste of in the here and now with Jesus' victorious death on the cross. 
these things are already true, right? They're already true. Jesus has destroyed Satan. He has conquered death. And there is still a future fulfillment of those things that will last forever and ever that we will no longer feel the effects of. That's the not yet. But we are currently in this already where we don't fully experience it. So that's, that's one thing that we get. Look at verse 15 then. So he's destroyed the devil and he has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are delivered. Hallelujah. We are no longer slaves to sin or to the fear of death because Jesus has set us free. He came to us. He became like us, his brothers and his sisters, and he has decisively delivered us. And I love verse 16 here because it hammers home the reality that not only is Jesus greater than the angels, but so are we. Jesus didn't die for the angels. He died for us. He loves us so much that by the grace of God, he tasted death for us. He didn't do that for the angels. He did it for us, the offspring of Abraham. This takes us then right into the last thing that I want us to see in verse 17. That he was made like us in every way. So that, purpose statement, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This shows us who he is and what he has done for us. He is our faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God, which is going to be, again, a major emphasis throughout most of the rest of Hebrews. We're going to have plenty of time to unpack that. But I want us here to focus on this phrase, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's probably a word that you've heard before. If you've been around church, you've probably heard some different explanations. Uh, there's a lot of scholarly discussion over this word. And again, this is one of those things where semantic range can be really helpful. Uh, the common secular use of this term in the New Testament times could mean uh, to appease the wrath of a god uh, by offering sacrifices. It can also mean carry the meaning of expiation, which means to put away, to the putting away of sin and guilt. This is a very important term as we think about the work of the priest. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest killed how many goats? Anyone know? Two. Killed two goats, okay? The first one he slaughtered, and he took its blood into the Holy of Holies, and he spread the blood of that first goat on the mercy seat, okay? In Hebrews 9.5, the mercy seat is mentioned, and the root word for mercy seat is the same, the, the noun for mercy seat is the same root word as the verb here to make propitiation. So the idea of the blood being shed and placed on the mercy seat so that God would pass over the sins of the people carries with it the idea of appeasing the wrath of God. That is one thing that the death of Jesus accomplished. But what did that second goat do? The second goat symbolically had the sins of the people placed on the head of that goat, and that goat was sent out into the wilderness to no longer be seen, symbolizing that the sins of God's people 
through the death of that first goat, right, whose blood was, was put on the mercy seat, the people's death, the people's sins aren't just passed over. They're actually sent away from them. They're sent out into the wilderness to no longer be seen. And that's the idea of expiation. So we have propitiation, that appeasing of the wrath of God, and that expiation of our sins being sent away. Jesus' work as our high priest includes both of these elements. He bore the wrath of God on the cross, and he carried our sins away, destroying death and the devil, rendering them powerless, and delivering us. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news that we need to be constantly reminded of and to have hammered home day in and day out, week in and week out. And the really good news for us is that Jesus didn't just die for our sins on the cross and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father to do nothing. We saw it in our shorter catechism question. He makes continual intercession for us. As our high priest right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And that's what verse 18 is pointing to. Jesus suffered when he was tempted as a human. We are tempted all the time. And Jesus prays for us. He helps us. By his spirit, he helps us to fight sin and temptation and to live for him. We need this assurance. We need this assurance that he is with us, that he didn't just accomplish something in history 2,000 years ago, and then he just checked out, and he's nowhere to be found, right? We see him. We see him seated at the right hand of the Father. We see him interceding for us, and we need that assurance and that reminder. He has not abandoned us in this world to just fend for ourselves. And what a great reminder that is as we come to this table this morning. We are reminded of his death in our place as our high priest, of his decisive victory over sin, over death, and over Satan, of our deliverance, and of of his constant help and intercession for us. So let us rejoice in him as we come to this table. The question then, who is this table for? And I would say, everyone. And when I say everyone, you know I don't really mean everyone. This table is for everyone mentioned in verses 10 through 18. If you can go through verses 10 through 18 and say, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, then this is for you. This is for those for whom Jesus died. This is those who are children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. Those who have been delivered, those who have been set free. If you read through those verses and you say, ah, yeah, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm not sure about that, or that's, that's not where I'm at, then we would ask that you would remain in your seat and that you wouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. But this is for all of those who have trusted in Jesus, who walk with him, who follow him, and who live for him as their Savior and Lord. This isn't for people who are perfect, right? You don't have to have it all together, but you have to know that you have a Savior who is perfect who went to the cross and who died for your sins.